Are you looking to advance your technology, develop your skills, work with our network of experts, and get top-notch mentorship? Applications are open for the UCSF Rosamond RISE. Through RISE, we identify promising entrepreneurs from groups that are underrepresented in health tech, such as women, people of color, and LGBTQ individuals, and we connect them with any number of leaders from our UCSF network and beyond. To apply, please visit rosamaninstitute.org slash programs slash rise. Applications close on February 9th. If you are an early stage company, what we look at is, is there a clear unmet need that they are addressing, right? Which is just similar to what we see too. Uh, is the size of the opportunity meaningful? And do you have a technology or an IP? Uh, you might not have a full product, but do you have technology that is differentiated? And if those three things are right, and then number four we look at is, you know, do we see this technology in our portfolio? And what can it do for us? And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. If you're not a leader, you can learn. At least you can if you listen to a couple of key lessons from our podcast guest today, Rajit Kamal. Rajit is the worldwide president for sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction at Johnson & Johnson. In his career with Johnson & Johnson since 2008, he has held a number of prestigious leadership roles. Some of those include vice president of Asia Pacific, vice president and global franchise leader of knee replacement, and senior director for strategy and commercial initiatives. Today, we go through Rajit's long and fascinating leadership journey. It's taken him through many companies and roles and has a lot of lessons for entrepreneurs at every stage. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Rajit. Thanks for joining me this morning. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Christine. Thank you for having me. And um, I think you have quite a journey uh, within uh, J&J, but walk us back through the your journey from the very beginning and how you uh, decide to come to the U.S. and then path your way to find the place where you are today. I think that would be interesting for our listeners to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I grew up in India, Christine. Grew up in a small town in India, and um, when I was eight years old, in in grade three, uh, I moved to a boarding school because the place where I grew up, uh, the schooling systems were not that good. So my parents uh, uh, sent me to a boarding school, which I'm very grateful for. So uh, I finished my high school, um, and then I went to an engineering school in India. So I I'm a chemical engineer, um, and when I was finishing my undergrad studies, I was always fascinated. Um, by the research work that happens in the U.S., uh, I had heard about the research institutions, the uh, the, the innovation, the ecosystem that has uh, that the U.S. has. So I always aspired uh, to go to graduate school and be part of that research work. So as I was finishing my undergrad, I applied to uh, multiple schools in the U.S. Uh, and came to Georgia Tech in Atlanta in a PhD program in chemical engineering. And at that time, I wanted to be a faculty. I wanted to do research and 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 be a professor. Um, and I had a very good time at Georgia Tech. Uh, while I was doing my master's, 
Uh, so my, my professor said, you do your master's and then that will roll into a PhD thesis. While I was doing my master's, uh, I worked with a company in the Atlanta area. Uh, and that was my first exposure to working uh, in a corporate environment. Um, and, and I got fascinated by that. I got fascinated by, you know, marketing and R&D and quality and the, how they all work together. Um, you know, how they look at unmet customer needs and, you know, they come together to solve those, bring those products to market. So what I told my advisor at that time was, why don't I finish my PhD, go back and work for a few years and then make a decision whether I want to come back to academia or continue in industry. And he was very open. He said, sure, finish your master's, go and work in the industry. So I finished my master's and uh, I joined Procter & Gamble um, in, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, Atlanta area. Uh, they have a manufacturing facility. So my first job was in manufacturing. Um, we used to make Charmin and Bounty, the, the, the paper towels that P&G sells. Um, and I had a phenomenal experience at PNG. It's a very good organization. Uh, in my very first job, I got to manage people, and, and I thought that was a great experience. And I learned some very important lessons in terms of leadership, in terms of collaboration, um, and, and and very grateful for that first job. But being at Procter and Gamble, you get to see the power of marketing. You get to see the power of uh, you know how do you uh, take a unmet customer need and really delight the customer. Um, so I got very interested in business um, and I thought, you know, why don't I um, go back to school full time and, and get an MBA? Uh, so I applied to Harvard Business School and, uh, and I was delighted when I got accepted. So I left P&G, came to HBS um, and both my parents were physicians. So I have always had the healthcare bent um, for whatever reason, never wanted to be a doctor myself. But healthcare was always an area that I was very interested in. Um, so in HBS, I focused a lot on healthcare. So I took a lot of healthcare courses. Um, and, and after HBS, I joined Boston Consulting Group uh, in the Boston area. Uh, but I did a lot of healthcare work. So we did healthcare works with, with payers, providers, uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, uh, and through that work, uh, what I realized was consulting was a great learning experience. But I really wanted to be in an industry. Um, and an opportunity came up at J&J. This is almost 14 years back um, in the Boston area uh, in the medical devices division. Uh, yeah, and that's when I joined J&J in 2008. Uh, it's been 14 years now, and it's been a fascinating journey, Christine. I have worked across different businesses within orthopedics. I have worked across different functions. I have done marketing, strategy, pricing, um, business insights. I've worked across regions. Uh, so I've had a stint in Asia, I've done global roles, I've done roles in the US. Um, and uh, you know, since October of last year, uh, I've been the worldwide president of our sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction business, uh, which is about a, a global billion dollar business for us. So it's just been a fascinating journey for me so far. Yeah, it's really uh, some things that I don't know. And sometimes you look back like, wow, you know, how far you've come along. Uh, from all the the work that you've done, you mentioned about uh, being at PNG that you learn a lot about leadership. I remember when I was at Kraft Foods many years ago, they recruit a lot of people from PNG, and many of them say how much uh, they learn a lot from the PNG training. And can you share with us a little bit what you said? You learned a lot about leadership. Why you specifically yeah. identify PNG with learning about leadership? Yeah, and I think it's it's the experiences that teach you. Right, uh, right, Christine. So I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. 
Um, so when I was at PNG, as I said, I used to manage people. So I used to manage uh, operators on the factory floor. Um, and I just want you to contrast this, right? So I was an immigrant from India, uh, and this is a place in South Georgia. So this is south of Atlanta. Um, and most of the people that, that I was managing were, were hourly employees. They worked on the factory floor. Um, most of them, uh, you know, the highest education they had was high school. Um, and, you know, they had grown up in the, in the, in South Georgia. So the culturally very different, right? So, uh, it was very difficult for me when I came in just, just to connect with them. And it's very hard to be a leader if you're not really connecting with people. And I remember one instance very clearly where, um, I used to come every morning, uh, and we used to have shift changes. We used to have a, you know, 24 seven operation. And I remember we had a, uh, a quality issue and I was asking the operator that, uh, you know, what's going on. And we had this issue last week and, and all of a sudden she said, I can't believe they hire people like you. You're one of the worst managers I've ever worked with. And, um, uh, I was, I was like, you know, why, why did she say that? And, and I went back to my manager and he said, have you made an effort to really get to know them? Right. You know, you show up as a manager, you ask questions, but have you really built that relationship? He said, have you really worked night shift? You don't have to, you're a manager, but have you taken that, you know, effort to work night shifts so to show them that, you know, you are willing to do what you expect your team to do, right? And, um, and he said, look, you know, you are a smart guy, you know, maybe management is not for you, um, but this is all on you, right? I don't think you have really built the respect, built the credibility, built the trust, built the connection to earn your place as a leader. Just because you have that title, that does not make you a leader. You got to earn it. Uh, and he said, I'm going to give you six months. Um, and if you turn this around, great. If not, I'll move you to an engineering role where you can be an individual contributor. Um, and that was an eye-opening for me. Uh, and, you know, I worked night shifts. I spent time getting to know them, being vulnerable for them to get to know me. And, and even though we, are, we have different cultures, different people, there are a lot of similarities. End of the day, we all care about family, our health. We have similar worries, right? You know, we have similar concerns and similar interests, right? Um, and and what it taught me was that what is important is to make an effort to get to know whom you work with, and for them to get to know you, you know, be vulnerable. Um, you, and and unless you build a connection, you cannot be a leader just because you have a title. Uh, you have to earn that. You have to earn to be a leader. You have to earn the respect of the people that you work with. Uh, and I think that was a very valuable lesson in leadership. And wherever I have gone since then, I've always invested time up front to spend time with the team. Getting And everybody is different, getting to understand who they are, what their aspirations are, um, what is the best way to connect with them, finding common grounds, uh, but also being very open and vulnerable as well. Uh, so, you know, when I say that experience was helpful for me, I think it was, uh, you know, the learnings that I had in terms of being a people leader um, has really helped me uh, in my you know twenty plus year career now. I think also the fact that you get that feedback it gives you the opportunity to change course with the right time, and then knowing that I need to figure this out if I want to make it work. Um, I think that's I always think that it's good to have. To, as a leader, to give your your supervisor did a nice job and give hundred percent. And I am so grateful. At that moment, maybe I was not happy, right? Uh, but when I look back, I'm so grateful. 
that. And and to be very honest, you, you have, that's a courageous decision. The easiest thing could have been that, you know what, ignore it, that's fine, move on, right? Uh, but the fact that he took the time to tell me what I needed to hear uh, and give me an opportunity to change, uh, I owe a lot to him. Uh, yeah. I think, um, so you mentioned about get to know people. And I think, you know, I, I came from a different culture and it, and like you were saying, getting to know people can be different for different people. And for you to get to know, but also for them to to respond to your interest to get to know them. Because I feel like sometimes when I came to this country, people are just like, it's none of your business. Like, what do you need to know? It's, it's nothing. It's, not, it's personal. How do you, you know, how do you navigate through that when you have so many people from, even though they are all from the South, Georgia, but everybody's slightly different too, right? It is. And I think, you know, it's, it's by trying to find common grounds, right? Um, and, you know, you talk to people and you always find something, you know, whether it's a common interest in sports or some movie that they like, or, you know, they are thinking about their kid going to college and you can share that experience. I think always trying to find something that is in common that becomes the hook to build that relationship, right? And remembering that, right? So next time you meet, hey, how is your daughter's college application coming? And people appreciate that, right? Or if you know somebody follows baseball, hey, you know, uh, I saw your team and they did this. I think you have to make an effort and you have to be genuine about it. So I think that's another thing. If you're faking it, people will figure it out. Right. Right. Uh, so you have to take a genuine interest in who they are, learn about them, but also share about who you are. Uh, and I, th- I would say 90 percent of the time uh, it works if you find the common ground. There are instances where the other person might not even be interested. Right. And that happens. And that happens. Right. But more than likely, you will find people who would be who would be willing to willing to form that relationship. So, but I think it's making an effort to being genuine, but genuinely taking an interest in understanding who they are, you know, being curious about them, right? You know, tell me about your journey. Tell me about your experience. And everybody likes talking about themselves, right? You know, uh, especially if you have somebody who is genuinely willing to listen uh, and finding things in common. You know, people have different cultures, but you will always find things that are common, always. Yeah, I think it's also the fact that when you show interest to other people, you become less self-centered. And I think sometimes you see in the in the you know big podium, it feels like the leader. You get all the limelight, and then sometimes you think being a leader, you need to be self-centered, but that's not true. Not true at all. Not true at all. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And so after that comment from your your boss, six months later, I was like, okay, <laughs> what happened then? Those six months was a lot of effort, right? I worked night shifts. 
I spent time with them. I made sure that they got to know me. I got to know them. Um, and and I, it worked, became more enjoyable. I looked forward to getting to work, right? You know, people had a smile when they saw me instead of, you know, figuring out, thinking, I don't know what question is he going to ask, right? You know, I felt uh, people do things because now they want to do things for you. Not because, you know, they are going to get questioned or they're going to get penalized, right? It's just a different level of motivation. You get a lot more out of the team. You get better team engagement. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, and uh, I think my job became easier. You know, my job became easier. Um, but then, as I said, look, I, I, I felt like I wanted to go back and get a formal education in business. I was still very much an engineer. Um, and, and I decided that, you know, maybe this is the right time. I was still young at that time. We didn't have kids. Uh, I was married, but we didn't have kids. And I was like, you know, maybe this is the time for me to go back to school full time, get an MBA. Um, and which is what I ended up doing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and HBS was a phenomenal experience for me as well. Um, you know, when I, uh, when I went to Harvard Business School, so Harvard Business School, as you know, all the classes are case studies. We don't have lectures, right? Uh, and the beauty about that is you get to learn from your classmates. So before that, all the schools I had been to, uh, we were all very homogenous population, which means everybody was science and math. You know, we were interested in science and math, right? In business school class, it was very diverse. We had people from 75 countries. I had never met a class. Uh, I've been in an environment where that was so diverse, right? Uh, we had people from humanities background, military background, entertainment background, banking, consulting. I mean, all sorts of backgrounds, right? Um, and what you realize is that when you're discussing and a question is posed, people approach based on their experience. Um, and it taught me humility because sometimes you think, oh, I know all the answers. But that is not true. When you hear different people's perspective, it changes your mind. So what it teaches you is, you know, be a good listener. Learn to listen from other people who have different experience. That's the beauty of having a diverse team as well. It always leads to a better output. Um, ask the right questions. As a leader, what is the most important skill is asking the right questions. Uh, so I think HBS was a great learning environment for me. I got to learn from my classmates. I learned some of these skills, right? Um, and it also exposed me to, I mean, I was, as I said, very much an engineer, right? And exposed me to so many opportunities. I didn't know much about entrepreneurship or venture capital and uh, the innovation network and all that. But um, but the biggest lesson for me was the value of having diverse perspective. It taught me humility. It, you know, we, you know, I thought I was I was a very bright student, and but what you realize is uh, you have to listen to other people, and that's again a very important uh, trait of a good leader as well. But more importantly, ask the question. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying it's so important to ask the right question, and how do you develop that? Yeah. So, is there like a framework or a tool set that you can, or is it something that you have to go through life in order to get there? Yeah. Some of that is some of that. So there are two things I would. Some of that is experience, Christine. Right. You know, you do uh, learn over the years, right? But the first thing about being able to ask the right question is to be a very good listener, right? It is to go in without preconceived notions. Like I go into meetings these days and, you know, it's important to go and listen to what the other person is saying and be genuinely curious. 
help me understand why right you know did you look at uh, the other perspective right if you're saying we should do x what if we do y you know what are the risks are we taking right um and i think it asking the right questions also fosters good good conversation right like if we go in if you're trying to address an issue and if i go in and i say i think we should do x or we should do y it shuts down the conversation instead of saying x or y i think i should ask hey team you know you know what are the pros and cons you know, tell me more about what would it take tell me more about you know what would be the consequences of this so i think some of that you learn through experience christine but i think genuinely listening being a good listener is step number 1 having genuine curiosity right not jumping to conclusions uh having an open mind i think all these are important foundations to be able to ask the right questions um but i do agree that uh, experience teaches you a lot as well yeah. and the feedback from others i think that's also helpful um i know um i do also want to uh ask you a little bit about the the business world that you are in in the orthopedic space and maybe you can share with us i don't know if you're allowed to share with us like what is jng vision and for entrepreneurs out there who are in the orthopedic space what are the things that is of interest to jng and if you can help them understand that would be helpful yeah absolutely i mean look you know as as so the the way we are structured right so johnson and johnson has three different segments so we have a consumer segment that jnj has announced the plan to divest um we have a pharmaceutical division you know which you know which developed the covid vaccine and has got the pharmaceutical drugs and then we have a medical uh, tech we call it medtech now uh, where we have three different divisions we have a cardiovascular division we have a general surgery and then we have orthopedics so orthopedics is about a 9 billion dollar global business for us and we make products from trauma or spine or joint reconstruction for sports medicine the business that i lead shoulder reconstruction the business that i lead um, and look our goal is to make sure that we bring the innovative products to market we say we want to keep people moving you know orthopedics is about activity i am in sports business you know we people who play sports tear their acl right we make products to fix that so they can go back to doing what they like doing um you know we make products which can help people get back to activity if you have a shoulder recon my my mother um uh, she had she passed away last year but she had uh, both her knees replaced with our products and uh, it had a huge impact on her life uh, so you know we are driven by linking innovation that can make a difference in lives of patients around the world to keep them moving to enable them to do the activities that they want to do so overall that is the vision uh but that is driven through innovation it is driven through education that we provide to our surgeon customers through service that we provide to our surgeon customers and more and more uh i think we need to make sure that we are being a um uh i would say a good ecosystem player so not all innovation has to come from inside i think we need to partner and that's where the startup companies come you know jnj has a jnj uh we call it jgdc johnson johnson development corporation Uh, which is our vcr where we uh, through that we make investments in promising technologies uh, where we potentially see them being part of our portfolio eventually so i think all these things uh, uh 
Uh, so yeah, so that's how we want to make sure that we are being a responsible player in the ecosystem to drive innovation as well. And so uh, one of the, you know, I'm sure being where you are, you're constantly looking at the landscape, what are the new technology, the trends, what, and then there's also technology that's available out there. For example, I mean, 3D printed that was created for something else that's not applied to. What are the other technology out there that you think will change how we do orthopedic? Yeah. So if you think about orthopedic, I think there are, there are a few things that come to my mind, right? So one is, uh, when I say digital, I talk, I'm talking about, uh, I think artificial intelligence will have applications in every aspects of our life and orthopedics is no different, right? So I do see application of AI, whether it is in terms of surgical planning, uh, being able to develop a personalized surgical plan, uh, whether it is in terms of identifying a personalized care pathway, uh, you know, optimizing patients before surgery, ensuring they have a very personalized rehab plan. Um, so I think AI will have a key role to be able to provide insights along the care continuum. Um, so that's one. I do think technologies like robotics, uh, augmented reality will have a role to play when it comes to intraoperative execution. Um, you know, we already have a robot on our knee for our knee replacement business. But I would, I think intraoperatively, people see augmented reality or other technologies seeing more and more uh, adoption. Um, the other technology I think that has applications is biologics. Biologics has been around for a while, uh, but I feel uh, you know the momentum is building where we will see more and more applications in terms of healing augmentation, uh, pain relief, uh, and I think that will be one area where we will see a lot of progress. The third area I would say is 3D printing. I think uh, you know whether it is you know developing personalized models to plan surgery, whether it is you know eventually or complex surgeries where you are developing a personalized 3D printed implants. Uh, but I think you know, those are the three areas where I think we will see uh, we will see a lot of uh, potential technology technological innovation. Do you see that is happening now? Do you see there's a lot of innovation? And is everybody approaches very similar, or is there some a few that is stood out that you're paying attention to? Well, look, there are. There's a lot of activity in the digital space. A lot of activity, especially in AI and AR. You know, I run into companies all the time. Um, so, a lot of activity is good. That means people see opportunity, people see potential. Um, some are good than the others, but again. Technology is something where you are constantly iterating, right? So something that not, might be good today might be excellent tomorrow, right? So um, what is important for us is to make sure that we are aware uh, of the activities that are happening and figuring out, you know, companies we want to partner with or potentially, uh, you know, want to bring them uh, to be part of JNJ, right? So uh, I think a lot of activity I see on the AI and the AR. I see a lot of activity in the biologic space as well. So as I said, you know, when we think about our innovation, uh, obviously, we need to make sure we have a robust internal capability, but we also have to be very actively looking at what is happening on the outside. Because especially in these spaces, there's a lot more happening outside and happening at a much faster rate uh, than we are able to do internally. Mm -hmm. And so uh, can you share with us in terms of when you uh, review technology that you think that JNJ is interested in and what stage, I mean, you know, people are saying now, like with MedTech now, like, oh, you know, you need to have a commercial track in order to get traction from a strategic 
And is it really always the case or there's, a, there's also some exception? If it is, like what make it an exception? Yeah, so look, if you have commercial sales, uh, obviously uh, that is ideal, right? Because um, you have commercial sales, that means you have de-risked the product. Uh, in a way, you have de-risked some of the commercial, especially on the digital, which is a new thing for us. You know, commercialization is is a question always, right? Can you monetize it? How much can you monetize? Who will adopt? And all that stuff you have to go through. So if you think about, you know, commercializing a digital product, very different than than what we have done before, right? Uh, you know, where do you store the data? Who you know, who owns the data? Who so all the things. Right? So if you have a commercial product where you're generating revenue, obviously that's ideal, right? Because then you can just bring them in and you scale it up, right? Which is something for us because of the scale that we have that is easier for us to do. Uh, but that is not always what we do. Sometimes you have a promising technology where we can go through our uh, sister uh, JGDC the um, the venture under JNG has, where we go after promising technology that is going after uh, an unmet need that has a big opportunity. So if you are an early stage company, what we look at is, is there a clear unmet need that they are addressing, right? Which is just similar to what VCs do. Uh, is the size of the opportunity meaningful? And do you have a technology or an IP? Uh, you might not have a full product, but do you have technology that is differentiated. And if those three things are right, and then number four we look at is, you know, do we see this technology in our portfolio? And what can it do for us, right? And if the answers to all those four are on the positive, then I think, you know, there are other ways for us to be able to either partner. Sometimes we could distribute without doing anything. We'll just distribute, right? Or we could make some equity investment as well. Uh, so I think depending upon where the company is and what our level of, there are different vehicles we have. Uh, but obviously, if you have a product that is commercialized, you have commercial sales, um, you know, that that is the easiest pathway. You, know, you distribute, you acquire, you scale them up. Uh, you have retired some of the typical risks you have, right? Development, regulatory, commercialization. Uh, but we are also interested in promising differentiated technologies that we eventually think uh, could be could be part of our portfolio, but we invest through a different different vehicle. For some reason, I thought my understanding the JJDC is that they invest more like an adventure rather than always think about J and J strategic interests. Is that wrong? No. Yeah, I think uh, JJDC um, most of the investment is uh, in companies that are of strategic interest to the to the J and J operating companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wish we have a case study that we can like discuss specifically why this approach that, uh, why it was acquired or uh, by J&J during certain stage. I think that would be uh, quite an interesting topic to talk about. Is there any case study that we can talk about? Of of companies that uh, yeah. I'm just trying to think through. Uh, look, they, I, you know, I, Nothing specific comes to mind, but there are companies where, you know, we have made an equity investment and eventually we have acquired. There are companies where we have done, uh, you know, I'll just give you an example on the, on our spine side, they just, we just acquired a company called Procedian uh, and it started with a distribution agreement. Uh, and then uh, they, they, you know, DPU Synthes eventually went, went and acquired that company. Um, so I think if we have, as I said, there is no typical 
it's it depends upon the stage of the technology the space what the company is looking for what our strategic interest are there are multiple ways to be able to partner it could start as a just an equity investment and leave it there it could be distribution it could be upfront acquisition it could be a distribution that can lead to an acquisition there are multiple ways sometimes smaller companies come to us and they have an fda approved product but what they're saying is you know can we distribute with you because you have a commercialization arm right and sometimes we are interested in that because we can scale it up and then eventually that might lead to an acquisition sometimes companies come very early you know they are still developing but they need a strategic partner as a part of development and if they have something that is unique and differentiated maybe you know we, we make an equity investment and we partner with them so again there is no one size fits all question it depends but the one thing i would encourage to listeners you know if you have a promising technology uh, that you think could be a strategic fit for jnj reach out to us you know uh, if it's in the orthopedic space you know definitely reach out to us or even general for jnj we are always looking for promising technology uh, that could be part of our portfolio yeah that, that's great my last question before i let you go i think is a lot of the startups mind right now with the current financial situation everybody's saying like it's a bloodbath uh, it's going to get worse and i remember when things were bad in the financial market in the old days long time ago uh, startup don't take uh, investment from strategic and then obviously maybe when things that there's not many investors and startups like well there's another way to get funding from strategic so of course strategic uh, become more mature in the way they look at investment in startups what are the things that are going to change do you think that you, you can predict or foresee in terms of how strategic engaging with a startup look in this environment right the environment is just talked about i have heard the same thing that you know the vcs are you know being more cautious in terms of investment you know the ipo windows are closing in you know the interest rates are going up right in this environment i think strategics have a very important role to play you know especially strategics like us you know we have a strong balance sheet uh, we have a triple a rating from a debt perspective um i think this is actually a favorable environment for strategics like us where for promising technologies you know we could provide the the support we could provide you know some of the investment that the companies are looking for right so i think uh, you know uh, our uh, former ceo uh, alex korski used to say jnj is built for times like these uh, so i do think when it comes to startup environment i think we have a very important role to play and especially environment like this You know, a strategic like us to really step up uh, to understand what are the important technologies, key technologies that you know our engagement might help. Right? Um, you know, I feel in medical devices, in in general, I feel um, strategics have a very important role to play. Uh, you know, we have established channels, we understand customers very well, we understand regulatory environment very well. The cost of doing business is going up. I don't know if you are aware of MDR regulations in in India. to be able to bring a product to mia is very expensive and uh, it is going to be challenging for a startup to do that right uh, regulatory environment is changing in australia is changing in china um, if you have global ambitions uh, i think strategics like us uh, have a very important role to play and could be a very valuable partner so more and more i think as the environment changes think about think about digital products you know a data privacy data security uh, not every startup can really create all that infrastructure right so again strategics like us will have a very important role to uh, 
place to bring those technologies to market right so when i think about the future um, the way the environment is evolving in the innovation ecosystem i think the role of strategic is going to become more and more prominent than it, than it has been in the past mm-hmm. it's almost like uh there's a lot more puzzle pieces and so everybody kind of have to play together because you need other people to complete the puzzle that is correct that is correct that is correct that is, and hopefully we can be an important piece of the puzzle i think strategics like us will continue to be a very important piece of that puzzle yeah Yeah, no, well, that's, that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insight and uh, what your vision is also in uh, leading this uh, organization within J&J. No, thank you, Chris. It was very nice speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah, and if there's anything I can do to help, you know, any, you know, I'm very happy to volunteer my time to mentor or help anybody. I'm very happy to do that. So Yeah, no, that would be great. It's like uh, we do this uh, a lot. We really rely, like I said, the Rosman Institute, we rely uh, a lot on people like you who are willing to give back to support uh, a lot of the early stage entrepreneur. Uh, that would be a pleasure. That would be a and, pleasure. You know, it's like hopefully the mistake that you made, it will not be repeated because you share that. I think that's... Right. What it is, but certain mistakes they still have to go through. You cannot go through life without mistakes. Correct. That is correct. Uh, yeah, as long as you take that as a learning opportunity and not get pulled down by it, that's important. Right. And I, I was saying that it's uh, everybody can survive the mistake because the world, otherwise the world would not be filled with a lot of people with a lot of wisdom. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.